All right, good morning, everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, welcome back to our class on Christology. We're in the midst of the chapter on the sacrificial death of Christ, sometimes known as the vicarious atonement. We left off on page 75 in Dr. Scare's text. I was noting just before we began that we're about two-thirds of the way through, so even though we're, we're moving slowly, so to speak, we're making our way and getting through this, uh, this very interesting text. Now, we simply pick up where we left off last week with what I think are some very, very important, if not the most important take-home points from this text, or at least pastorally speaking, it's what I'd wish for you to take home. If you look at page 75 and just simply drop down 3, 6 to the seventh line from the top of that, that first full paragraph, Scare writes, the atonement of Jesus is not foreign to God's being God, but in the cross what God really is comes to its fullest and most complete expression. That's the key insight there, uh, to see on the cross revealed to us the fatherly heart of God, and not something that is alien to God, but rather intrinsic and innate to God who he is, as a, as a, what, what, is, what is the person of God like? What is his personality like? What is his character, what are his characteristics? These kinds of anthropomorphic types of questions, but they're answered for us most foundationally, fundamentally in the cross. That's who he is, the one who will do anything and everything for us to save us the one who loves us so deeply and dearly he gives himself. He gives his only begotten son. All right, Scare continues. The son is begotten of God who is eternal love, and thus he fully shares in the father's love. Out of this divine love, and uh, out of this divine love, the world was created, and also because of it, the son was sent by the father for the world's redemption. The crucifixion more than any other moment in the history of the world, of Israel, or even of the life of Jesus, is the greatest manifestation of God's essence. So again, the crucifixion is the greatest manifestation of God's essence. And that's why we Lutherans, you know, we don't make any laws about it, but we love our crucifixes. And we wherever, whenever we can, put those front and center in our sanctuaries, and our homes, because we recognize that in the crucifixion we have the greatest manifestation of God's essence. To contemplate the crucifixion is to contemplate the love of God and the identity of God. All right, Scare continues. It is not without purpose that the first two evangelists concentrate the testimonies that Jesus is God's Son in the moment of the cross. References there to Matthew and Mark's gospel. The cross is an affirmation of God's triune essence and not incidental to it. 
And I suppose, you know, just put a finger there, I'll make a quick comment. But I suppose that too then is the danger of denying the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, denying the vicarious atonement, is you end up rejecting that that's the very identity of God. So then what is the identity of God? It's something else. What is the essence of God? It's something else. You have to replace it with something other than the cross. And what you replace it with then is going to have deep impact on your perception of, of God and how he is and who he is. All right, picking back up with Scare. Only when God is thought of in majestic and transcendental categories and not in terms of love and compassion is the cross with its suffering a contradiction or paradox. Again, that might take a minute for you to sink in, you know, to sink in with you, but it's worth taking that minute because this is a rather profound, rather important point. Only when God is thought of in majestic and transcendental categories, when God, when God is thought in, of in this way, then we see his cross as a contradiction or a paradox, not who he is, alien to who he is, different than what he is. But when we, when we see him not, not in these, uh, these abstract categories, majestic, transcendental, but rather see him in the concrete categories of love and compassion, then uh, the cross loses its contradictory or paradoxical nature. We see it in perfect harmony with who God is. Scare continues, To say that Jesus is God's Son means in the Hebrew idiom, that he embodies within himself all the qualities that make God who he is. Whoever else calls himself the Son of God as Jesus did makes himself equal with God and is guilty of blasphemy. Reference to John 5.18, which of course is just a reminder because someone in the congregation sent me some kind of internet thing email blast, whatever, that was quite obviously written by a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or something like this. Again, just asserting that Jesus never claims to be God's son. Well, we know in the earlier chapters he does, in fact, claim to be God's son. And that that claim to be God's son is a claim to be divine, and that that, in fact, is the very reason why he ends up on the cross. Because people, his enemies understand the claim he's making, that in claiming to be God's son, he's claiming to be God, to have the same essence and characteristics of God, and so they want to crucify him. And If you need a proof text for that, you can go to John 5.18. But just worth stating parenthetically, the old uh, Arianism, <laughs> ancient church history, uh, heresy, um, alive and well today. Scare continues, in his dying for men, Jesus reveals himself for who he is, the Son of God. Though separated from God as the one who was made sin, he remains God's Son, revealing God's essence and will for all men. Thus, the Trinitarian revelation cannot be limited to the baptism of Jesus or its explicit verbal realization, or excuse me, its explicit verbalization in the baptismal formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but its reality is unveiled in the moment of the cross. Yeah, and this is a point that's really only come home to me recently, the truth of this statement, 
If you look at Matthew's Gospel, for example, you see the Trinity revealed in Jesus' baptism. It's a very big deal, of course, because if you're, just, if you're tracking biblically, then Jesus' baptism is this rather profound moment where all of these Old Testament strands of, uh, you know, of the first power, God, and of the second power, this angel of the Lord, who is also described as divine. And, and then this third power, the, the spirit of God, the spirit of the Lord. You've got these strands all throughout the Old Testament, and they all come together at the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus comes up out of the water. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. We know it's the Father because he calls him the Son. We know that Jesus then is the Son by the Father's word. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of the dove. So you have this revelation of the of the Holy Trinity. And in Matthew's Gospel, this is a very big deal because it forms kind of this bookend or inclusio has rather profound impact because then you see once again at the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, this baptism is now for us, for all the nations, that we would be made his disciples, being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there you have the explicit revelation of the Trinity. Well, as Scare's pointing out, you also have a revelation of the Trinity in the cross. Now, it's not explicitly made this way in any single gospel, at least not that I, not that I know of. I'm willing to be corrected on that, of course. But rather, when you take the sum total of the, of the evangelical witness, in the first place, you have uh, Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You also have Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so, so you obviously have this, this exchange between the Father and the Son uh, taking place, even if only on the Son's part, if, even if only he is doing the speaking. And then when, I think it's in John's Gospel, it says that Jesus uh, dies, he gives over, he hands over his spirit. And we sometimes translate that rather inaccurately in English as he gave up his spirit or he gave up the ghost or something like that, idiomatic for dying. That's not what's being said at all. I forget the exact verb. It's something like paradosis. It's the, it's the formal word for handing down or traditioning something. Traditio, handing it down. Um, in the language of Paul, for example, where that which I receive, I am handing down to you. And so when Jesus gives up the spirit. He doesn't give up. He hands down. He gives over the spirit. This is a, in John's gospel, this is a really interesting thing because you can actually see in John's gospel, in the crucifixion alone, John doesn't have an account of the transfiguration, but you, you get the transfiguration on the cross because that's the glory of God. That's God revealing himself as who he truly is. That's the transfiguration. Of course, you have the death uh, as atonement. Of course, you have, um, but you also have this, this weird kind of resurrection theme there that I don't have time to go into, even on the cross. And then you also have this ascension idea that Jesus is lifted up, uh, lifted up in John's gospel. So you've got the ascension there, and then he hands over his spirit. And so you've got Pentecost there. In other words, in John's gospel, 
in the, in the crucifixion itself, if you pay really close attention to the ideas and themes, and then also what's missing from John's Gospel account, you find these elements showing up in the crucifixion of Jesus, really in a, in a very um, profound way, showing us that, that all of these elements are elements of Christ and him crucified for us. Okay, well, that, uh, that a little bit aside from the point. The main point here being that in the dialogue of Jesus, as he speaks to the Father, you have the Father and the Son, and then in the handing over of his Spirit, you have the Spirit. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed quite concretely there at the cross. So Scare points this out here. Thus, the Trinitarian revelation cannot be limited to the baptism of Jesus or its explicit verbalization in the baptismal formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But its reality is unveiled in the moment of the cross. Scare continues, the Father offers up the Son and the Son offers himself to the Father willingly because he is the Son. Jesus, as sinner, dies because the law requires it. But this is never an abstract, autonomous law, but the vibrant, living expression of God's wrath. So here's Scare viewing the law not so much as what it is in and of itself, but as its, uh, its effect on us as sinners, its condemnation, its expression of God's wrath. The Spirit directs, and what I mean by that is if you just go to the Old Testament and you look at the giving of the Ten Commandments, nothing's said about wrath at all. The law itself is not wrath. Um, it simply appears wrath to us because we don't measure up to it, and so it condemns us. All right, But what is it in and of itself? In and of itself, it's good, St. Paul says, and it only condemns us because it's good and we're not. Strictly speaking, the condemnation is, is in our experience of the law. It's not innate to the law itself. The Father offers up the Son, and the Son offers himself to the Father willingly because he is the Son. Jesus as sinner dies because the law requires it, but this is never an abstract, autonomous law, but the vibrant, living expression of God's wrath. The Spirit directs him into conflict with Satan, Matthew 4.1, and assists him in offering himself as a sacrifice to God, Hebrews 9.14. At the hour of his death, the centurion and the soldiers with him acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of God, a confession which can only be evoked by the Spirit who assisted Jesus in his work of atonement. All right, well, that takes us to a break within this chapter as, again, we have uh, been meditating on the sacrificial death of Christ. And now we'll pivot a little bit with in this topic and address the specific uh, question of the wrath of God and its relationship to, to the sacrificial death of Christ. I'm just sorry, I'm trying to, I'm a little distracted here because I'm just trying to look ahead. Yeah, this section, we've got this subsection and yet one more when we look at Christ's death as a moral example. Yes, sir. I'll try. I've got to repeat your question for the internet here. This is a, that's as far as in the context here of what we're discussing. 
Yeah, I think so. I think those are very worthy reflections, and I'll, I'll do my best just to reflect some on your reflections. The people uh, online can grasp your comment just by the nature of my own. Um, but as to your point, uh, Jesus being forsaken by the Father, if this were just a human being being forsaken by the Father, in its fullest expression, that would be identical to the experience of hell. To be forsaken by the Father is, is to not find a, a gracious God present for you. And when we talk about, you know, when, when Christ says that he's forsaken by God, usually the opponents of this who want to who put some other idea in Jesus' mouth Will, will their argument pay attention? Their argument will, will say, will, will be to the effect that you, you can't make an ontological distinction between the Father and the Son. Why have you forsaken me? Would, would divide the Godhead. That's, that's usually the, the rationale given. It's a very poor one. It doesn't make any sense because when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a division between God and God. It's a division between the Father and the Son, and that because he who knew no, knew no sin in and of himself, Jesus Christ, the innocent one, God lays on him the iniquity of us all and then treats us as we deserve. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that Jesus remains perfectly faithful even in the face of that, crying out, my God, my God, in perfect faith, not in despair. Yeah, so those are the two sides. Now, the fact that uh, Jesus, so it, as we'll see in the next chapter when we get into the descent to, in uh, the descent to hell, the reformed have a way of saying that his descent into hell was the continuation of his suffering. It's a very common theme in reformed theology, uh, not in Lutheran theology, really not in any early church theology either. But where the idea that Jesus suffers hell comes from is precisely this moment where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the essence of hell that he's suffering on the cross, not by descending into hell. That's something altogether different, but, but there. And then I know you're trying to get a word in edgewise, just one more, uh, one more quick point there. Um, so then in, in Jesus uh, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If, that was just, if he was just a human being, one man, you know, not true God, then yet that would be exactly identical to the impact of anyone who's forsaken by God, who's forsook God and thus is forsaken by God. But the fact that he is there bearing the sins of the whole world, the fact that he is divine as well, uh, it is truly unspeakable. The, it really, as horrific as the physical suffering was, and I think if you watch Mel Gibson's Passion, that gives you a pretty accurate depiction of how that in fact was, as gruesome and as horrible as that physical suffering was, it probably paled in comparison to the spiritual suffering and torment, unthinkable to bear the condemnation of God for the sins of the whole world. So, anyway, I think I touched on your major themes Thank there. You, and, yeah. Yeah. and that we interpret in that sense, because he goes to hell after that, and then he raises Okay, well, yeah, so, so maybe, but maybe for the sake of, of those watching online, I'll try to, I'll just reframe everything. So, um, chronologically speaking, and we'll get a picture of this, especially as we go into the next chapter, but chronologically speaking, Jesus is on the cross. Okay. Uh, he goes through his seven words, the last of which is, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. 
Um, now that that is a that is a different way. That's the synoptic gospel way of looking at it. John's gospel way of looking at it is he he gives over the Spirit to us. It's it's got um, Pentecost hidden within it. It's it's the expression of Pentecost. In the in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is a commending of his Spirit into the hands of his Father. So if you're going to say where does the where does the Spirit or where does the soul of Jesus go upon his death, it's paradise, it's heaven. We know that too because of what he says to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus' body is then taken down from the cross, put into the tomb. His soul is, is in paradise uh, with the thief and with uh, his father. Okay. Now, when, we'll get into this in detail as we get into the next chapter. But Christ is made alive by the Holy Spirit. That is, he comes into his flesh and is made spiritually alive, um, ra- risen in his body, and yet a new mode of being. And thus he descends into hell to triumph and announce and proclaim his victory over Satan. Either, and this is, we'll get into the details of this, either immediately after this, or even as Scare kind of alludes to, possibly at the same time as this, he is showing himself resurrected in his body uh, to, uh, for example, to Mary Magdalene. Um, So he's physically resurrected. Okay, so we'll get through the chronology of this. But the Lutheran position, um, according to the Book of Concord and according to Lutheran theologians thereafter, is that when Christ goes into hell, he goes into hell in his body, in his body, raised from the dead, and thus has a victory to proclaim. Not as a human being. Yeah, not as a, yeah, not as a dead human being, but as, as a human being who has conquered death. Yeah, and already, already in his flesh. So again, we'll get into the details of that uh, probably next week, possibly this week, as we get into the next chapter on Christ's descent into hell. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is his experience of hell and the forsakenness of God. When he actually goes into hell, there's no experience of hell for him. He's not there suffering. Okay, well, from uh, that that preview of a controversial topic to another controversial topic, and that's the wrath of God. Uh, many, many who reject the sacrificial uh, death of Christ do so because they are allergic to the idea that God might have wrath. But just by way of preliminary remark, I would, I would challenge you to think of times in which wrath is precisely the right and correct response, that if you didn't respond with wrath, you would be accused of being unloving or psychopathic or otherwise uh, devoid of normal moral reaction. I'll leave this to your imagination, but I'll simply, I'll simply give a, a few examples. I mean, obviously, obviously, if someone were to break into your home and, ass- and assault your wife and children or something like this, if you don't respond with wrath, there's something wrong with you, right? If you don't, I mean, if, if you see injustice, if you see uh, someone who is uh, poor or defenseless 
a widow or an orphan being abused or mistreated, and you don't respond in wrath with a sense of injustice, a sense of I want to put that right, a sense of anger at those who did this wrong, then something's wrong with you. So in these very simple preliminary ways, I'm, and again, you can use your imagination and come up with whatever scenario. I'm just trying to introduce you to this idea that wrath is, can, can and most certainly is wholesome in many, many instances. Very wholesome, very good uh, to, to have wrath. So this helps us understand so often uh, when people bring up the wrath of God, we have an immediate allergic reaction. Or, even if we don't, even if we've trained ourselves out of that, we immediately think, well, I'm not allergic to it, but I, but I don't really see any, I don't like it, I don't see any good. I acknowledge that that's the way it is, that God is angry over sins. I acknowledge that. I think it's true, but I, I'm not getting ready to go so far as to see that as a good thing. Right? So that's, that's then our challenge, is to see the wrath of God as a good thing, as, as a right and correct response, and then we're going to understand uh, that in connection with the sacrificial death of Christ in a very fruitful way. All right, any thoughts or uh, comments before we begin? <coughs> Excuse me. All right, let's jump in. First is a quotation from the Augsburg Confession. There is one Christ, true God and true man, who was truly born, suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried in order to be a sacrifice not only for original sin, but also for all other sins, and to propitiate God's wrath. So, there you have it. If you're going to be confessional Lutheran, you must confess this very thing, that Christ is propitiating God's wrath by his death on the cross. If you don't have that, you don't have Lutheranism. Now Scare uh, picks up the pen. Christ's death as a vicarious satisfaction for man's sin has God's love and God's wrath as motivating factors. If it is established that the New Testament understands the death of Christ as necessary, and to see that argument you can go back to page 67 with the language of day, Delta Epsilon Yoda D-E-I Day. It is necessary. So if it is established that the New Testament understands the death of Christ as necessary, we then must understand the factors within God or in his relationship to the world which required the death of his Son. Simply to affirm that the death of Jesus was divinely necessary is hardly satisfactory by itself since the question of why such a death was divinely necessary remains unanswered. It will hardly do to suggest that any probing into the divine is impermissible. Neither can the answer be that this belongs to the mysteries of God. His death is the expression of the innermost being of God and is neither an arbitrary decision nor an incidental historical event. The phrase, Jesus died for sins, implies that man, because of his sin, 
is responsible for the death of Jesus, and that this teaching must in some sense be dependent on and subsequent to such prior realities as God's Trinitarian existence and the creation of the world. This is the intent of the Nicene Creed expression, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and is prominent in Lutheran theology and piety. All right, so what are we doing here? In terms of formal argument, we're saying the Augsburg Confession teaches this, the Nicene Creed teaches this, we're going to get down to the scriptures teach this as well. Now, as Scare mentioned in the very first line, vicarious satisfaction for man's sins has both God's love and God's wrath as motivating factors. So in this coming paragraph, we look at the wrath aspect. The wrath of God as the motivating factor for the atonement comes to expression in such confessional designations for Jesus as sacrifice and propitiation, terms used frequently in the apology, the defense of the Augsburg Confession, Lutheran Confession. So um, just simply in the language of sacrifice and propitiation, you have this taught. Scare continues. In the Latin version of the Augsburg Confession, Jesus is called the sacrifice, hostia, but the German is more specific in indicating that this is, quote, a sacrifice not only for original sin, but also for all other sins and to propitiate God's wrath, end quote. The confessional discussion revolves around the issue of how the sinner frees himself from God's wrath. Lutherans see faith and not works as performing this function. Faith is not viewed by the confessions as an independent, autonomous factor in overcoming divine wrath, but only as the presence and reception of Christ as propitiator in the life of the Christian. Faith is never the propitiating factor. In other words, over and against God's wrath, we don't ever uh, you know, put forward our faith. Right? There's a debt owed to God, that debt is paid by my faith. No, there's a debt owed to God, that debt is paid by Christ. Um, this is credited to me because of my faith, which simply receives the work, blessings, and benefit of Christ. So again, faith is passive, is that which receives the work of Christ. Okay, with that out of the way, on to the next paragraph. Though the apology understands the propitiation of Christ in terms of Old Testament sacrifices, it makes a reference to the pagan custom of the Latins who, quote, offered a sacrificial victim to placate the wrath of God, end quote. And you can find that in the Apology, Article 24, Paragraph 23. Basic to the Lutheran distinction between the law and the gospel is the understanding that the law is universally applicable to all men simply because all men, fearing God's wrath, have a sense of the need to appease it. Uh, it just stick a finger there for a quick comment. That's why when you look at religions, 
just in general today, globally, or of course in the past, historically, they all center around this transactional idea of things aren't going well, we need to do something for God or God so that things start going well again. Right? That's really simply the point. Why on earth would there be this universal human opinion regarding this? Why? I mean, think of all the diversity of times and places. Why wouldn't people invent other paradigms and other ways of religion? But there's just not. Every single religion is based uh, in part or in total on this kind of transactional idea of God or gods are offended, we must placate them. Okay. So, just where we left off, standing between God's wrath and man's culpability is Christ, who sets his merits and propitiation against the wrath of God for us so that we might freely be forgiven. And that's a reference to Apology 27:17. So, in other words, inherent, in, this is the way the confessions argue, Inherent to all people of all places and times is this idea that God, God's wrath must be placated. It must be appeased. And then Christianity says, yes, we have the one sacrifice that actually accomplishes this. The one sacrifice that puts to an end all of this false religion and false religious striving. The one sacrifice that could possibly mediate between God and man is the sacrifice of the one who is God and man, you see. So Christianity just makes fundamental sense then viewed from this angle. And this really is a rather, I think, a rather convincing, at least if nothing else, mindset and mode for doing evangelism and doing apologetics is to just go out and have people observe what the religions of the world do and have done for millennia and say they're all seeking for this one thing which Christianity alone has. No other, no other religion claims to have the one sacrifice that answers and ends all sacrifices, save Christianity. But in order to have any of this, you know, you've got, you've got the assumption that God's wrath is real, is just, and uh, must be placated if we're to be uh, reckoned as righteous if we're to have our, our debts counted as forgiven. Scare continues. Wrath, Christ's death as propitiation, and a conscience free of the guilt of sin through faith form a continuum in confessional Lutheran theology. So complete is the effectiveness of Christ's death that good works can have nothing to do with either his propitiatory sacrifice or acquiring its benefits. In other words, it's fully accomplished by Christ. There's nothing left but to proclaim that message. <clears throat> and of course that changes hearts and minds and affects behavior and fruits worthy of repentance and good works, etc., etc. But that's just aside from the point being made here. None of those things in any way merit or contribute to the once and for all propitiatory sacrifice of Christ crucified on the cross. <clears throat> Next paragraph. The Gospels describe the death of Jesus 
as God's own answer to his wrath. All right, so again, big picture, we've done the confessions, we've done the creed, we've gone back to the confessions from a slightly different angle, now we're getting to the scriptural basis. The Gospels describe the death of Jesus as God's own answer to his wrath. Though the death of Jesus is historical, his death for sins is, in a certain sense, supra-historical. A mystery which cannot be known through human research because it is motivated by reasons known only to God and then to man by special revelation. By special revelation, we mean the scriptures for us. Prophetic revelation if it's directly from God. God does not offer up Jesus only out of his love with no thought of his wrath. It is precisely because God sets his wrath aside through his Son that we are able to know its extent. In spite of God's justifiable wrath and anger, he reaches out to fallen man in the person of Jesus Christ, who is offered up as the atoning sacrifice for the world's sin and thus satisfies God's holy wrath. I love this line. Theologians who find the scriptural teaching of God's wrath distasteful to their delicate sensitivities <laughs> dismiss, the no <laughs> dismiss the notion of Christ's death as the vicarious satisfaction for the sins of the world. Okay. I mean, God, God creates a creation that is good. He is angry when that creation is messed up. He is angry when human beings hurt themselves and hurt other people. And this, this shouldn't be this wild alien thought to us. Any of us who have had children feel the same way. You get angry, you get upset when one child punches the other child in the face. You, know? you get angry, you get upset when a child uh, disobeys you and hurts themselves. You know, the initial reaction, the initial reaction is, is anger, then it's overwhelming relief, you know, that they didn't actually harm themselves terribly. But it's one of, you know, I, I remember my teenage years where my mom, like, you know, I do something really boneheaded like a teenage boy, and my mom's initial response was like, you know, she wanted to slap me, and then that gives way to immediately hugging me and saying, you know, I'm so glad you're safe. But that's, that's precisely the tight and close connection between love and wrath. Love and wrath. I mean, if I, and this is, this is where biblic, properly understood the biblical expressions of God's jealousy come, in, come into place. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, right? In the, in the language and context of, of husband and wife, if your wife is, is fooling around and being unfaithful and that doesn't anger you as a husband, there's something really wrong with you. And you may not, in fact, love her at all. So when Israel fools around on Yahweh with the gods of the ancient world, God is jealous and angry. And that's exactly the correct response because why? He actually loves her and loves her deeply, doesn't want her to hurt herself. Okay, and so, so the very close connection between love and wrath, I, you really can't, the more you think about this, the more you ponder it, you can't have love without wrath. You simply can't. Love without wrath, then, isn't love at all. So as we, uh, 
as we consider then the, the love and wrath of God, the close connection to these things, we realize that God is offended by human sin. He's wrathful. It's distasteful to him. He cannot let it stand. It's also distasteful to him that, that we human beings have so deeply wounded ourselves and separated ourselves from him that it is love and wrath that compels him to send his son to set this right, to heal us and to bring us back to himself, redeemed and reconciled. So that's why Scare says there's there's these two aspects of God's love and God's wrath as motivating factors. And again, separating those things out may be easier said than done, may may be easier in the abstract than in the reality. As we, again, as we ourselves know from experience. Okay. So who are these theologians who find the scriptural teaching of God's wrath distasteful to their delicate sensitivities? <laughs> well, there's tons of them in every denomination. In every denomination, there's tons of them. Just wait uh, around... Um, Good Friday, and you start to see this stuff come out in spades in Holy Week. I was listening to the Roman Catholic radio station at uh, 1,000 a.m. I, don't, I think it was just this last year, though it may have been two years ago. Uh, and, and during Holy Week, they had you know, Father so-and-so on there talking about how God could not possibly be wrathful, and this would be chi- divine child abuse. And, you know. So, I, again, the, the wrath of God is distasteful to his delicate sensitivities. And unfortunately, we've seen our share of that within the, those who call themselves Lutherans as well. So, they dismiss this notion, as Scare says, of, God, of Christ's death as vicarious satisfaction for the sins of the world. All right, well, who are they? Scare continues, the 18th century rationalists, along with their successors, such, such as Schleiermacher, Ritchell, Uh, von Harnack, and what is generally identified as early 20th century liberalism, think in these terms and are more likely to emphasize the moral example set by Christ's death. Well, before we pivot and go there, these Schleiermacher, Ritchell, von Harnack are uh, some more, some less, really the the root and origin of radical Lutheranism and uh, the theology so prevalent in the evangelical Lutheran church in America today. Uh, The sort of gospel reductionism, all that matters is God loves you. Oh, that's not a gnat, that's a spider. I was wondering why it was just hovering there. There we go. Run along, little friend. Okay, so that's... um, yeah, so when we're, when we're looking at the, you know, how is it, how is it that you get this idea that, that the only thing that matters in the scriptures is the gospel, and the gospel trumps anything else? I mean, what you see here is a destruction of this entire framework, because God is, you know, again, God can't be wrathful. That's against our delicate sensitivities. And so if God isn't wrathful, what is he? He's just loving, he's just forgiving. And he's not going to let anything get in the way of his love or his forgiveness. Now this starts to pit God against the law. Because where you don't have God in unity with the law, where, he, where the law condemns, 
because it is good and we are not, and the law belongs to God, and so he condemns and is wrathful. Where you've already said that that can't exist, now you've started to say God is only love and the law is wrath, therefore God is contrary to the law. Now, if God and his love and his grace and his mercy are contrary to the law, which do you think wins? God and his grace and his love and his mercy. So therefore, the law and anything else that condemns is simply blown out of the water by God's love. So what you're staring at is the root of gospel reductionism, the root of radical Lutheranism, and uh, it's, many, it's many theologians today that unfortunately have worked their way into LCMS circles as well. So this is why uh, gospel reductionism, denial of the atonement, um, all go hand in hand. Now, I think there's a little difference because these older liberals um, that so influence Lutheranism as manifest in the ELCA, um, while they turn to the moral theory of the atonement, not really so for the, for the modern practitioners, for the modern uh, students of, of these men, Schleiermacher, Ritchell, and von Harnack, and others. Uh, but rather, they turn more to the Christus Victor with a rather bizarre twist that the atonement doesn't take place on the cross. The atonement takes place inside of you. The atonement takes place inside of you. What happens to Jesus on the cross has nothing to do with anything. Could have happened, could not have happened, according to them. Just complete accident. The atonement takes place when God, through his speech, through his preaching, changes your heart with the proclamation of forgiveness. Now your heart is changed and reconciled to God. There is the vicarious atonement. So that's precisely what uh, Gerhard Ferdy, Stephen Paulson, Jim Nestigan, these guys teach. And it's why you ought to, it's why this thing is really, really tricky for us as confessional Lutherans, because we hear this language and it doesn't immediately, it doesn't immediately raise any red flags to us. This idea that God proclaims us forgiven. What could be wrong with that? That's right. Sure, no problem. And so you can really get deceived by not realizing that when these men say that what really matters is having a preacher, what really matters is handing over the goods, what really matters is um, the words, I forgive you your sins, you don't realize that that's so central to them precisely because it is replaced Christ crucified for you. They'll say you are forgiven, but they won't say Christ crucified for you. And those two theologies are worlds apart. One has the atonement on the cross, the other has the atonement in each individual heart. That's why sometimes this theology is criticized as existentialism or existentialist theology, because the atonement ceases to be an objective thing on the cross outside of you and becomes a subjective thing that takes place inside of you. Make sense? Well, I mean, of course it doesn't make sense to you. You're a confessional Lutheran. But does the, does the distinction make sense? Hopefully so. So this is what we're up against and what we're dealing with. Now, Scare's going to turn us as these uh, older liberals, the Schleiermacher, Ritchel, von Harnack, etc., they turned to the moral theory of the atonement. So that's where uh, Scare turns us to. Uh, he is going to mention Gerhard Ferdy on the next page. And, uh, and he's going to talk about some of the, he's going to end up talking about some of the pros of properly understood Christ's death as moral example. Uh, and that'll round out our chapter. So by next chapter, he'll introduce 
the, uh, the Christus Victor motif. And I'll just point out here, I'll point out again when we get there. But we've talked at length about the problems with calling uh, these things theories of atonement because theories, again, suggest as if there's no actual reality there. Christians use the language of the theory of evolution in a pejorative way, and rightfully so, but to say that there's not a reality, it's just a theory, right? When we talk about theories of atonement, we run the same risk of a pejorative usage such that, well, these are all theories, none of them are the thing itself, and in fact, these theories contradict each other. Well, we're not going to take that, and we're not going to take the philosophical underpinnings of such language and thought. What we do want to say is that there are different motifs or different ways, uh, different pictures, you can use all this other language, of, what, uh, of the atonement. And there are three main categories that, that tend to emerge in the life of the church and really that tend to emerge from the scriptures themselves. That's why they come out in the life of the church. The first of those is the Christus Victor. That's the shorthand phrase for this. Uh, and all of this, of course, really brought to bear in, in, uh, in Gustav Allen's book uh, by this title, Christus Victor, um, where he basically says that that's the right one and the other ones are inferior, which, which that's wrong. Uh, all three of these are biblical. But the Christus Victor is really the idea that Christ is victorious over the powers of sin, death, and the devil. So, Again, this is an oversimplification to be sure, but just sort of in terms of memorizing a simple idea, Christus Victor is Christ against the powers of darkness and beating them, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the devil. It's perfectly biblical. It's perfectly right. Okay. Next would be what is sometimes called the Anselmic theory. Uh, Anselm was somewhere around the 11th or 12th century. The Anselmic theory is what we've been discussing here in this, in this chapter, the sacrificial death of Christ, the vicarious atonement. As you can see, thoroughly biblical, thoroughly scripture, you'd have to, scriptural, you'd have to dig out the entire Old Testament, the entire sacrificial system, all of the book of Hebrews, many of the things that Jesus says, including the Lord's Supper, as well as many of the things that the other apostles say, including Paul's proclamation that he's the Passover lamb, um, etc. We'd have to remove all of that from the scriptures if we're going to remove the Anselmic theory or the vicarious atonement uh, motif or aspect. So we're going to, again, confess that as well as the Christus Victor. And then last but not least, the, the moral, the moral, Christ as example. That's another way to put it, Christ as example or the moral uh, motif. So we'll take a look at that um, both in terms of its pros and cons then uh, coming up here. So, where we left off, page 77, um, shortly after that, uh, that naming of Schleiermacher, Ritchel, and von Harnack, Scare continues, the exemplary or moral theory of the atonement, as it is called, found a much earlier expression in the medieval theologian Peter Abelard. In fact, Peter Abelard, um, and he is, uh, he is basically uh, early 12th century, He's the one who really articulates this. Peter Abelard, who located the atonement 
in the believer. Ah, see, there's the root. Remember how we were just talking about radical Lutherans locating the atonement in the believer? And this they follow Abelard for all their differences with Abelard, for all their disagreements with any moral theory of the atonement. They agree with Abelard on this most foundational point that the atonement takes place in the believer, not on the cross. Peter Abelard, who located the atonement in the believer since Christ's death involved no change in God, but resulted in a change in man. So that's Abelard's theology. There's no change in God, but a change in man. We would be very careful in articulating how there's a change in God, but we would articulate this. There's not a change in God's essence. There's not a change in God when considering his transcendental nature or properties. But there's a change in God in, in this uh, imminent sort of way that his wrath towards man is appeased. His wrath towards man is appeased. Again, it's, it's his wrath and it's love that drives, it drives him to send his son to oops, redeem the world and uh, to reconcile the world to itself so that he no longer sees the world with any wrath at all. It's, it's appeased in, in Christ, save for those who reject Christ and who want to stand outside of Christ. His, uh, then, then they choose to be back under his wrath. So we'll talk about that a little bit as we progress on. But for now, uh, enough to note that Abelard's view is that there's no change in God just a change in man. So the atonement happens only in man. Scare continues, on the other hand, those who understand the death of Christ in terms of sovereignty, as does strict Calvinism, see in Christ's death a powerful demonstration of God's wrath against sin. His death is an example of how God will deal with the reprobate. In Lutheran theology, the death of Christ may be used for preaching both the law and the gospel so that man can see how great God's love was for man in overcoming his wrath. The cross as divine act in itself is a manifestation of God's love. A scriptural and confessional understanding of Christ's death balances God's wrath against sinners with his persistent love for them. And here you can see the footnote uh, 8 and dropping down to the bottom of the page, Scare writes, a recent example of how far some contemporary Lutherans are willing to travel from the scriptural and confessional witness is provided by Gerhard Ferdi, who writes, quote, Jesus dies for us and not for God. There is not just a little perversity in the tendency to say that the sacrifice was demanded by God to placate divine wrath, end quote. And that quotation from Ferdy comes from uh, Broughton and Jensen's. Uh, I think it's Broughton and Jensen's dogmatics, but Broughton is the only one listed here, so maybe it's just Broughton at that point. Um, this is, uh, what's the copyright on this text? 1989? So this is 1989, like 30 years ago. Uh, Scare was aware of this, and uh, unfortunately those seeds really took root. 
but in this quote from Gerhard Ferdi then, and, and quoted in a standard ELCA dogmatics textbook. I mean, this is the other thing. It's like people want to say that there's a difference between ELCA and Ferdi. Not really. He was in the ELCA. He, he's responsible for their chief dogmatics, or at least he's quoted in, in their chief dogmatics approvingly. So what's he actually saying in this quote, though? If you look at the last sentence, there's not just a little perversity. Okay, in other words, he's saying it is quite perverse to say that the sacrifice was demanded by God in order to placate his divine wrath. That's a perverse thing to say, according to Ferdi. So then Ferdi's answer is that he doesn't die for God. That is, he doesn't die to placate God's wrath. He doesn't die because God wants that or demands that because justice requires that, he dies for us. How so? In what sense? To move our hearts. To move our hearts. So there's, there's where Ferdy stops short, at least here in this text, of saying it's a complete accident and historical mishap that Christ dies on the cross. Here he wants to, he wants, but he wants to only put a human spin on it. It's just simply to uh, you know, draw us to him. Sort of like, I think, I think it's Paulson who used this quote. It's sort of like the heroic action of a, of a father pushing his child out of the way of a speeding vehicle. How that draws your attention, love, and admiration. But in and of itself does nothing. Um, you know, for you, that's essentially Christ's death on the cross. When he dies, it, it does nothing for you except draw your attention that what a hero he was. right? And thus, then you can hear the forgiveness of God's. It's a mess. It's a disaster. But this stuff's been around for uh, you know, at least 30 years, as you can see here. Okay, um, well, I see that we've got mere seconds left. So let's simply pick up there on the top of page 78 next week. We will uh, do our absolute best to finish here on the sacrificial death of Christ and to get into Christ's descent into hell. The Lord be with you.